called from, called to, and called for. Shalom. Thank you for joining us for the Sunday Sermon of May 10th, 2020 from Christ Church, Jerusalem. Canon Daryl Fenton in the fifth week of Easter shares how the earliest disciples in Acts responded to God's call through Messiah Jesus and considers its implication for us today. Before we begin, a prayer request. Please pray with us for our sister ministry, the Anglican International School, Jerusalem. The Anglican School reopens this week after the coronavirus shutdown, and like other schools in Israel, must contend with keeping students and teachers safe as all return to campus. Learn more about the Anglican School at aisj.co.il. Thank you. Now, let us begin with the lectionary readings. Our readings appointed for today. The first one, coming from Acts, chapter 7. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And then they cried out with a loud voice, stopped their ears and rushed at him with one accord, and they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is the second uh, reading is taken from the book of Psalms, verses 1 to 16. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge a fortress of defence to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit, You have redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. I have hated those who regard useless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in your mercy, for you have considered my trouble. You have known my soul in adversities and have not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a wide place. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. My eye wastes away with grief. Yes, my soul and my body, for my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. (laughs) 
and my bones waste away. I am a reproach among all my enemies, but especially among my neighbours, and am repulsive to my acquaintances. Those who see me outside flee from me. I am forgotten, like a dead man, out of mind. I am like a broken vessel, for I hear the slander of many. Fear is on every side, while they take counsel together against me. They scheme to take away my life. But as for me, I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me for your mercy's sake. This is the word of the Lord. Please stand for the gospel portion of Scripture today. It's taken from the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John, verses 1 to 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on you know him and have seen me. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? Who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do he will do also, and greater works than these he will do, because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask anything in my name. I will do it. The word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we come into your presence to hear your word and understand it. Indeed, the only light that we need is the light of your Holy Spirit to illuminate it. For we know it's a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. So we pray, pour out your Spirit upon us today, within us and around us, 
Captivate our minds and our hearts that we may hear and obey. In the name of the one you sent to redeem us, we pray. Jesus of Nazareth. Amen. Somewhere across town, directly behind where I stand, was where it happened. You can read about it in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2. And it also began a character sketch of Jesus' disciples immediately following his resurrection. The opening scene of this sketch would be great cinema. The first disciples who saw Jesus resurrected and witnessed his departure from earth, they're gathered together in a house, praying. Suddenly, the house began to shake as if in an earthquake. Then a howling wind then hologram-like tongues of fire hovering over each head, and then they all started praying in different languages. The hubbub drew a crowd. So the leaders moved outside, the 12 apostles, and they stood together, and Peter, their spokesman, began to talk, to preach, really, and you know, it was really quite a a short sermon, When he finished, the crowd reacted by saying, verse 37, chapter 2, that they were cut to the heart. What shall we do, they said, and Peter replied, repent and be baptized. It was, if you didn't know it, a very, very Jewish answer. For the past two weeks, we've worked our way through the section of Acts that follows this sermon. It's it's what came after the repentance and the baptism, a description of how this group of people who began to follow Jesus formed a congregation, or as we say now, a church, and what their lives looked like. Today is the fifth season in the celebration of Easter, that world-changing event. And it is, therefore, so important that we understand not only that Jesus' death and resurrection changed the world, but how it changed through the people who followed him. Today we come to the end of this character sketch, what we heard read from the end of chapter 7. And this is the last of the three Sundays devoted to understanding how Jesus' disciples lived in that time. Two weeks ago, David Pelegi focused on these first paragraphs following Peter's sermon, verses 36 to 41, and on two evocative phrases, that first we just heard, repent and be baptized, and then be saved from this perverse generation. From this perverse generation. He made a point of that last phrase, you'll recall, especially the word saved. You see, Peter didn't just offer his hearers a kind of eternal life just as they were. Rather, the repenting and the baptizing, the turning that would also save them from the blighted era in which they lived. Our text reads perverse generation. Others read corrupt. They're both correct. David's point, eternal life, is far too narrow a reading of the text the, author, the offer was an alternative government, a kingdom, and it is eternal, a kingdom that began immediately upon repenting, was anchored in baptism and the pledge of allegiance to God through Jesus, 
that it meant. And it continued until human corruption within the soul and ultimately within the world was routed out. But the catch for Peter's hearers was this. They were observant Jewish people. They didn't think they were like that generation, but Peter's Peter's sermon told them that they were, that they must recognize that the corruption was also within them and they must repent so that they could, by the painful process of following Jesus, be healed. And then David asked the question, does our generation need saving from? Whatever one's political or religious views, and for different reasons, no doubt, I think there's a near universal consensus right now that this is a corrupt era, a perverse generation. But in case you needed reminding, nations bitterly divided, environmental degradation everywhere, the needy and helpless politicized but still ignored, democracy diminished, universal financial inequity, corruption in high places, political leaders who repeatedly dissemble and distort the facts, and if that were not enough, hashtag me too, a plague of fathers who don't pay child support, dishonest and manipulative advertising, senseless shootings, and all of this before the coronavirus. Surely, the time is corrupt. I suspect that most of us here in this room and most watching from their lounges and living rooms have probably made a decision they want to turn from this time of corruption. But the question the preacher has to ask is, have you? If our generation is perverse, as Peter's generation... Is there some new way that's come along to be saved from it? How about a political solution? Or, or maybe a psychological conversation? A rational plan that everyone will accept. But the more awkward question comes to us as well, to you and me. Are we part of that corrupt generation too? Do we need not only to be saved from this generation, but from all that is within ourselves, or much of what was in in ourselves? I certainly did. Do you? Here at Christ Church, we are unapologetically under new management, the management of that kingdom and that king, and oh, we welcome you to join us. The next sentence of the text says, And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. So if deep in your intuition you should be like one of those 3,000 souls, at the bottom of your screen, if you're watching from somewhere else, you'll find a way to get in touch with us. If you're here in the room and the Lord is speaking to you, talk to us at the door. We'll have a conversation later. Or you can chat online with one of our hosts. Be sure you don't leave this day not having escaped from what is around us and within us. Then last week, Aaron Imey took us through the second part of that character sketch in the following paragraph from chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Just, just a couple words here. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, 
in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. In, in week one, we, we, were say, we saw how we could be saved from a corrupt generation. And this paragraph describes what those new disciples were saved to. As Aaron carefully said, to a community of faith. Those earliest disciples were called from a corrupt generation into a community that endeavored imperfectly but progressively to live together like the master they followed, like Jesus. We haven't time for all the particulars, but two things we should remember. They did specific activities together, verse 42. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The gospel is yet unwritten. They were taught by those who were eyewitnesses to Jesus' life and teaching. They joined in the breaking of bread and prayers, not an uncommon thing to do for Jewish people. They continued on, but in a new way. But in other words, they began to form what we call a church, a community of teaching and worship. Aaron's conclusion, if you were here and recall, was quite sharp, clear, and I think accurate. If you're not willing to be called into a community, into a church, don't bother becoming a disciple of Jesus. That's just not how he designed it to work. He's not interested in loner disciples. When you gather in my name is how he put it. And secondly, in this community, awe and wonder and love replaced selfishness. I think today would gloss that with self-realization, perhaps. That's from verse 43. Put more dramatically, they practice joyfully death to self. They lived Jesus' words. Life is better when one gives than receives, when one is humble rather than proud. In this kingdom, hearts are changed, not votes. This is why they could hold all things in common. Something far more precious was in their possession than houses or lands or education or a stock portfolio. One could choose to be in or out, but not both. One could have or at least desire all that a corrupt generation could offer, or one could live in a glorious kingdom. Is there something here for us? So many generations later in a world so much more advanced in research and technology and consumer metrics, For most of my life, preachers described these verses as a temporary experiment that the church soon outgrew. But I must say, time and experience, that's another way of saying growing old, has shown me that that they weren't wrong. That they were wrong, sorry. History refutes it. These kinds of communities have existed continually since Jesus' day. Saying Christian community is not realistic is too often used as an excuse to have it both ways. 
to consider oneself spiritual, but to reject the rough and tumble of living in a spiritual community. Now here at Christ Church, like it or not, we always have a kind of community because of the volunteers, people older and younger who come here from all over the world, joining us for a season to serve, to pray, to learn. We're privileged to receive every year volunteers from a modern community, just 100 years old, and like this one in Acts. Their goods are held in common. Humility is upheld as a virtue. Scripture is the constitution of the community. One of those disciples wrote her testimony. I'd like to read it to you. I grew up in the Christian community known as Bruderhof. After spending adult time away, I came to the decision that this is where God called me to give my life. Why did I want to join this radical way of life? First, I believed it is biblical to dedicate one's life to living with, caring for, and sharing all with one's brothers and sisters. At Bruderhof, we share everything, property, talents, time, money, in the same spirit as the first church in Jerusalem. As a follower of Jesus, it is important to be with other believers so that I can love and be loved. Let my sinful rough edges be sanded off and not only admit my own mistakes and flaws, but also learn to tolerate those of other people. Through my fellow believers, Messiah speaks to me, reshapes me, and counsels me. Life lived in community is an answer to many of the problems in this contemporary society. There are no rich or poor. Everyone is cared for. Everyone belongs. And everyone contributes. I also find in Bruderhof brothers and sisters in Messiah with the same biblical standards as myself. We uphold the sanctity of life, marriage between one man and one woman, We value the elderly and those with special needs. My younger brother has Down syndrome. And despite the doctor's looks of apology when he was born, my family and community accepted him as a blessing from God. And with a lot of care, love, and support, he has flourished. We also had a 107-year-old sister in the Lord join us. She received 24-hour care until her death a year ago, including a daily visit from the children of the community to sing to her. I know we aren't perfect. It's not utopia or a dream world. In fact, it's reality and hard work. Yet I know that this is the best way I can live out the greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind and to love your neighbor as yourself. Surely you're thinking, he isn't saying we all have to live like that. No, not in every detail. It's a special calling, perhaps. However, as you listen to that testimony, didn't it create in you a wistful appreciation a longing that your own church experience produced the same results. 
It can, of course. That's the point. Love, sacrificial care for one another, personal service to those in need, not just a donation, and perhaps most of all in our time, accountability. That is a biblical church, and according to the scriptures, it's not optional. It makes us look more like Jesus. Lest I make not make myself clear, it has no place for pedophile priests, mission organizations that lie, or preachers who say following Jesus will make you rich. But they're not our concern. The apostle says, the Lord has double judgment for them. No, our concern lies at home. A biblical church does not require a celebrity pastor. Do you? It isn't a consumer experience where we like everything, you know. Um, I can't worship with contemporary music or hymns. They just don't do a thing for me. Nor is it just the service we attend even regularly, good as that is. Not a Bible study or just a Bible study that teaches us where we learn or even a financial gift. They're all good. They're all correct. But it's really a place where we practice death to self in love and advance into the kind of life that drives corruption not only from us but from the generation or at least the community in which we live. And now we come to the third aspect of this character sketch. It's the quickest to describe and the easiest to understand, I think. We find it in chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Acts, although we just heard its conclusion. I should note that in chapters 3 through 5, there are all sorts of lessons and failures of this new community. And in some ways, they shaped the triumphs that would follow. It takes us to a moment when what seemed like a petty dispute is turned into an example of maturity and courage. In chapter 5, the disciples prayed for boldness. In 6 and 7, that's what happened. So let me read to you from chapter 1 of verse 6. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were being neglected in daily distribution. Now doesn't that sound like church? The leadership stepped in quickly They appointed seven men. Not sure what they were thinking here. Probably seven because that's a special Jewish word, but we don't really know. Then then the writer of Acts, Luke, singles out one. His name was Stephen. He talks about his character in verse 5. He said he was a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. It should interest us, since Stephen was chosen to oversee food distribution, that he and also Philip, we know, were articulate and powerful witnesses to the alternative kingdom and his sovereign. So much for it all being for preachers, or at least for senior pastors or rectors or whatever you call them. We know that he could give witness to this kingdom and this community powerfully. Two paragraphs later, he describes Stephen again as full of faith and power. He did great wonders among the people just like any of us can. 
As was true of Jesus, this kind of behavior could get one in trouble with the authorities. You can read about the theological politics in the second half of chapter 6, but it resulted in Stephen, like Jesus, being hauled before the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin. He was falsely charged with blasphemy, kind of a familiar story. The high priest then asked him to give his defense. Chapter six, uh, chapter 7, verses 2 through 53 is that defense. Clearly, we haven't time to go through it in detail, but I do want us to see the bold elegance with which Stephen spoke. In time-honored Jewish practice, he retold the narrative of the Jewish people, like you'd find in Psalm 105 or 6, as an example. But he altered the expected pattern to focus on several times when the Jewish people rejected or refused the Lord's help and the leader he sent. Starting with Abraham, Stephen quickly moved to the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, and writes, The patriarchs, becoming envious, sold their brother Joseph into slavery. And Stephen notes how Joseph was honored and then necessary to redeem them from what would later be their face-off with starvation. Then he moves to Moses, who had defended two enslaved Hebrew brothers in the ensuing fight, committed manslaughter, And when the next day he tried to interview in a Hebrew-only dispute, was rebuffed by the perpetrator who said, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? And then Stephen comments in verse 35, This Moses whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge, is the one God sent to be ruler and deliverer. And then he adds in verse 37, This is that Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brethren. Then adding another layer of argument, he says, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness, the one who received the living oracles of God for us, whom the fathers would not obey, but rejected. And he keeps piling on the evidence. And then he draws this, also diplomatic conclusion. You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Stephen was, as you know, showing the Sanhedrin that they had rejected the Lord's anointed, Jesus the Messiah just as their forefathers had rejected Moses, Moses whom they considered their founder, the one whose words they used to condemn Jesus and now Stephen. The outcome of the kangaroo court is well known. The evidence that Stephen committed blasphemy was never presented. There was no judicial deliberation. They simply dragged him out of the city and executed him by stoning. What a waste, I'm tempted to say. Mature, spiritually recognized, gifted, a powerful and persuasive preacher. What was God thinking? We still don't know, except that Stephen's been an example of holy courage, of humility. He kept on serving tables and obedience. The text tells us he died joyfully. 
departing with the vision of the master he was soon to join. Is there anything here for us? Of course there is. A worldly corruption has crept into the community of faith. It's the idea that God owes us a special calling, a kind of spiritual career. And we often view it as some kind of personal honor, maybe a recognition of how gifted we are or how holy, public affirmation. But biblically, it's nothing of the kind. We're called into salvation from corruption into community. If we mature in that call, the king will entrust us with being stewards of his word and work, but we serve at his pleasure, perhaps for a long time with some public recognition. Perhaps we depart like Stephen in a blaze of heroic but useful sacrificial glory for the advance of the kingdom. Maybe we're completely anonymous and maybe we're famous, but you know it doesn't matter. In God's economy, it always ends with the same person and in the same place, and it's all done for the same purpose, to serve him in his redeeming work, rescuing his world and its people and his people from corruption. So let me be clear. All of us, especially me, are tempted by even the smallest kind of fame and affirmation. It's sweet to receive but it has little or nothing to do with God's purpose in calling us. We will be rewarded, but later. If you're not prepared to wait, said Jesus of the Pharisees, well then, you have your reward. My question to myself and to you is simple. What will it be? Convenience, self-realization, and seeking the approval of our peers? or redemption, community, and obedience to the sovereign of the righteous kingdom of love that will have no end. We all make the choice. What will be yours? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page on SoundCloud, or by leaving a review in Apple Podcasts. You can offer practical support by giving a donation at ChristChurchJerusalem.org. Thank you, and blessings from the City of the King.